0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, November 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the state mourns 10,000 people dead of the coronavirus. Then fear and mistrust snarls efforts to combat lead poisoning in the Mississippi Delta. And hospitals face a growing shortage of nurses. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Within the past week, the state marked a devastating milestone in the battle against COVID-19. 10,000 dead of the disease. More Mississippians have now died of COVID per capita than residents of any other state in America. Kobe Vance has led pandemic coverage as part of MPB's news team. He joins us now. Kobe, you've reported on this issue for well over a year now. What has that experience been like?
1: It's been a long journey, whether it be families who have lost a loved one, whether it be doctors and nurses who have been fighting on the front lines trying to care for patients, members of the faith community that have been working to help provide donations so people can eat. It's been a struggle that's hit us every single person in the state. And covering that has been a tremendous task and one that's honestly kind of burdensome at times. Like when you're neck deep in it every single day, Sometimes it's important to make sure that you remember those who have passed, but also take time to celebrate the lives they had and grieve and let yourself be able to cope with the trauma that the entire state has faced over the past year.
0: Yesterday, you covered an interfaith remembrance event held in Jackson to honor the 10,000 Mississippians who have died of COVID-19. Can you describe the atmosphere there for us?
1: Members of Work Together Jackson, a collective group of different faiths and uh, denominations, came together in at Smith Park outside the governor's mansion yesterday. And they were just trying to lift up the voices of those who have lost loved ones and help remember those who have died and the loved ones they left behind. On the lawn, they had about 1,000 flags, each representing 10 Mississippians who had passed. And at the same time, you have people singing praises in various languages of various faiths and seeing them all come together yesterday. They were just all trying to help do the same thing, which is, you know, remember those in their communities that they had lost, but also approaching it in a way that none of them wanted to stand alone. They wanted to recognize that we are all Mississippians, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our faiths. And each loss of a Mississippian is one we all have to bear.
0: While you were there, you spoke with Jason Coker, who's part of a faith-based organization called the Baptist Cooperative Fellowship of Mississippi. Let's listen in to some of that conversation.
2: Over 10,000 people have passed away because of the pandemic, and it's affected every one of us uh, as religious leaders, as human beings. We've lost family members. We've lost friends. We've lost people in our congregations. And You know, it's just nobody's unaffected. And as a interfaith group who can stand together, uh, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and uh, share our common humanity together in memory of those we've lost and and the trauma of what's been left behind uh, is important. I think it's an important for the uh, religious community in the state of Mississippi and as religious leaders to hold that unity together.
1: How has the pandemic affected your congregation?
2: Well, it's, um, we've had more funerals in our churches across Mississippi um, than anything that I can remember since I've been the coordinator of CBF. Uh, you know, it's just felt like there was a funeral every week uh, or multiple funerals every week in our congregations, uh, and we just lost people that didn't have to die. You know, that's, uh, that's kind of how it feels, and it's, it's a painful, it's a bitterness there.
1: Is there anything else that stands out to you about today that you'd like to share with Mississippians?
2: Well, I, you know, we're such a religious state. I mean, we're permeated. We have churches and synagogues and uh, Islamic centers and uh, temples, uh, Sikh temples, uh, Hindu temples all over the state. And it, I think it's important for religious leaders to come together and um, you know stand together when we, as human beings, uh, collectively have so much loss. I think it's uh it's not just a statement of unity, it's a statement of goodwill towards each other. And I think there is something bedrock in all of our faiths about that.
0: That's Jason Coker of the Baptist Cooperative Fellowship of Mississippi. We're talking with MPB reporter Kobe Vance, who covered an event held yesterday to remember Mississippians who've died of COVID-19. Kobe, as you said, representatives of several religious groups in the state were in attendance at that memorial. Were anyone's comments there especially impactful?
1: One that really stood out to me was a speaker who is a leader in the Mennonite community. He talked about how he had a very personal connection with the coronavirus and how it affected his life directly.
0: Let's listen in. From Open Door Mennonite Church, yes, we have Mennonites among us this week. Well. Reverend Hugh
3: Holloway. He?
4: I am Hugh Hollowell from Open Door Mennonite Church, and I bring you greetings of grace and peace but I'm also here as a boy that misses his daddy my father was the director of emergency management for Marshall County Mississippi last year and in October of last year on a Thursday he was delivering PPE to first responders on Saturday he was diagnosed with COVID on Tuesday he was dead the pain of it in addition to the normal pain is that he was supposed to retire in June but decided he couldn't ethically do it in the middle of a pandemic I know that that's not, I'm not the, it's not a solitary story a minute ago we raised our hands and, and you all have stories that are just as impactful to you We are collectively members of a horrible club that we didn't ask to be part of. The 10,000 and more Mississippians that are represented behind me in these flags, they are not political issues. They are our fathers, our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our church members... The lady who made coffee at my coffee shop I go to. The poets tell us that no man is an island. All of our our lives ripple out and impact countless others. And it is right and just and good that we are here today and that we remember these people. And that again, that it not happen again in our lifetime.
0: That's Hugh Hollowell of Open Door Mennonite Church. Kobe Vance, thanks so much for joining us this morning to share your reporting. Thank you for having me. Coming up, the challenges of combating lead poisoning in the Mississippi Delta. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Lead contamination is a major concern for aging water systems throughout the state. A team from the University of Mississippi and the Mississippi State University Extension Service is trying to combat the threat. They're now offering free lead-in-water testing for schools and daycares in several rural counties. But as Stephanie Otz of Ole Miss tells MPB's Desiree Fraser, gaining the trust and cooperation of child care administrators has been an uphill battle.
5: We were able to sample quite a bit this summer, but recruitment has been challenging. There's a lot of concern. Well, one, there's not a lot of awareness about the program and kind of why we're doing it. So it takes a lot of outreach to child care facilities, but also there is just general concern, often facilities not wanting to know whether there might be lead in the water because there's uncertainty about whether they would be required to do something about it, right? There's just concern that this means I'm going to have to replace all my pipes and I don't have money to do that. So our team was able to uh, sample about 20 childcare facilities this summer but um, we're like now like recruiting in the fall and we haven't had as many um, in the fall semester as we did this summer. And uh, so, like I said, there's reluctance to participate um, and, and recruitment has been challenging.
3: What did you find in the 20 facilities that you did check? Every
5: facility that we have tested so far has had at least one fixture that has had detectable amounts of lead and we have had we had five or six facilities that actually exceed had fixtures that exceeded our level of concern, which is five parts per billion, and uh, we would recommend resampling those facilities and taking mitigation action um, for those fixtures. For instance turning it off if it was like a water fountain that a child had access to or installing filters, uh, those type of actions. So um, I would say we are finding lead in facilities and some do have levels that are concerning enough to require mitigation.
3: In terms of the danger of lead in water, can you speak to that?
5: Yeah, so there is no safe level of lead um, exposure for children, and all uh, exposure should be controlled. Lead in drinking water is an underappreciated uh, source of exposure for children. And so lead in the drinking water comes from the use of lead in our plumbing materials, and it can leach from the pipes um, when the water is Corrosive. And so, if there is lead in water in childcare facilities where children are drinking or food is being prepared, then that is a potential exposure route for those children. And the concern that we have is that um, even at low levels of exposure, children can have impacts related to reduction in IQ and educational. achievement and the in neurological concern.
3: So in breaking that down, they have delays in learning?
5: Yes, that like, uh, yeah, right. Children would have delays in learning. There has been some research that links lead exposure to like ADHD, um, which can obviously affect concentration that might also impact learning outcome.
3: How does it make you feel that some folks would rather not know because of the cost of replacing pipes when yet and still this could be a very real and serious concern.
5: From a policy point of view, uh, just reveals to me the continuing lack of support uh, that we have to address this ongoing significant public health crisis, right? When people are working, uh, more worried about the potential consequences than knowing what is in their water that means that we don't have the structures and systems in place to provide the support um, what we need to get the lead out and to um, ad- address the the problem so uh, it To me, it means we need to continue to work on our messaging um, and communication around this issue, but that we also need more resources in place to help mitigate risks once they're identified.
0: Stephanie Ott is a member of the Lead in Drinking Water team at the University of Mississippi. Coming up, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, the state faces an intensified nursing shortage. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi hospitals face an acute nursing shortage in the wake of COVID-19. We talked about the problem yesterday with Susan Russell of the Singing River Health System.
5: I've been in healthcare for 38 years, and I'll tell you the last week has probably been the scariest I've ever been through.
0: Today, we hear from Mississippi Rural Health Association Executive Director, Ryan Kelly. He tells Desiree Frazier there isn't just one reason the state is hemorrhaging nurses.
6: The lack of nurses that we have right now that have, and nurses that have gotten out of the workforce due to concerns over contracting COVID, uh, concerns over being vaccinated if it goes against uh, their personal beliefs. It is a time where nurses are certainly exiting our workforce at what I presume to be record rates and then of course the influx of travel nursing in particular states that may be a little wealthier or maybe of a greater need than Mississippi have hired many of our nurses that are willing to travel therefore just continuing to exacerbate what has already been a problem for us with the, the nursing workforce so hospitals are in a challenge.
3: So when hospitals contact you what are they hoping that you can do for them?
6: Well, hospitals are not necessarily looking to us to uh, provide guidance or assistance in hiring uh, nurses, but they are in particular looking for uh, assistance with resources related to finding nurses or the educational uh, attainment uh, for nurses to basically graduate and go into the workforce, uh, as well as any policies that could be changed. And at this point, I'm not aware of any policies that are intrinsically limiting uh, the number of nurses in our state or in particular areas. So really, they're they're looking for help, but it's a a level of help that unfortunately we as an association are not necessarily able to provide right now, which makes it certainly frustrating for me and for for our board because we want to be able to help. It's just something that's kind of beyond our control and beyond our ability right now.
3: Is this a long-term problem?
6: I think it is. I do believe there's there has been groundwork for a problem for a little while now given the influx of travel physicians uh and travel nursing and that you know the pandemic has magnified so many things and and created additional fractures in places that were already vulnerable and I think that this is probably created an environment that could heal, could change, could go back to normal, but likely is going to be around with us for a little while. That's my that's my assumption at the moment.
3: And when you say a little while, are we talking about a year or two?
6: I'm thinking 5, but again, that's just me. The the data I am seeing is not slowing when it comes to the nursing shortage and unless we are able to come up with policies that encourage people to stay in their full-time jobs and not go into travel nursing, or we are able to relax the requirements for vaccination for healthcare workforce, I don't believe that that is something that's going to change in the near term. So I would not say – I mean I think there will be improvement in a year, but I think it will take five to ten years for us to go back to any state of normalcy with respect to the, to the nursing workforce.
3: And so that means people going into the healthcare field, studying, graduating, coming out. So that means people wanting to do the work.
6: Yes, that's right. I think that that will be what ultimately fixes this, is more people going into nursing school, graduating, staying in the state, and taking these jobs. Not to mention once the pandemic really starts to settle down, and it already has nurses coming back to Mississippi, re-entering those full-time jobs. And I, I say five years. It's p- very possible it could be sooner, and I'm a little fearful it could be longer. Uh, but uh, I think five years is my personal guess just based on what I'm seeing so far. Uh, but there's a lot of extenuating circumstances that we just don't even know about yet that would factor into how long this might last. Are
3: the numbers low enough Low enough in reference to the COVID-19 that those who have decided it was too dangerous to be in that workplace would be willing to consider returning? Have you gotten a pulse on that at all?
6: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, honestly, I think that at this point from most of the anecdotal conversations I've seen and the bit of data that's out there on it, I think that people may have left the workforce temporarily due to concerns over COVID-19, and I believe that it opened many people's eyes to the lifestyle that they were under, being you know high pressure, seeing death and pain and problems all day long. And I think some people just really enjoyed not being there. And that's sad. I hate it, but I think people got at home and they you know stayed home with their kids. They they were going to You know, baseball games with their kids and studying with them at school or at home. And they started realizing that uh, maybe the nursing lifestyle wasn't exactly as glamorous as maybe they were thinking it was at the time, or maybe it just got too difficult. And you're seeing a lot of nurses, many that I've spoken to personally, that have said, I realized how hard it was once I stopped having to go to work 12 hours a day or more I realized how much I was missing, and many of them have left for those reasons, and I don't see that changing unless their lifestyle circumstances change. You know, Kids graduate from high school and go to college, and uh, maybe an empty nest syndrome, uh, or maybe they do get bored and decide to go back, and they miss that intense lifestyle because especially with certain levels of nursing, it can be very intense. Uh, If you're any sort of a trauma nurse, ER nurse, uh, it can be very intense. Uh, in what you do. And I think some people just maybe got burned out of it. And so I think you see a lot of people that have left the the nursing workforce, and really the workforce in general, from that same introspective nature of having time to, to reflect on where you are and what you want to do, and priorities have just changed.
0: Ryan Kelly is Executive Director of the Mississippi Rural Health Association.